Welcome back to America Speaks. Today is a different kind of episode because I'm going to turn the mic over to my wonderful producer, Kim Langbacker, who will be interviewing me. I'm delighted, Tish. It's been an amazing journey of friendship and watching your brilliance behind the camera, in front of the camera, and the elegant way in which you really capture every subject that you photograph in a way that really highlights our shared humanity, I think. And certainly some of the photographs that you've taken, I I would imagine the circumstances around them were quite difficult. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. But I'd really like for people to have a sense of who you are and how you came to be a UN photojournalist and to be a part of the protest movement that has taken you literally into every corner of the country over the last 20 years or so, and and even before that. And just to have an idea of what made you want to pick up a camera to begin with and to really sort of give us a perspective looking through your eyes. Oh, well, thank you so much, Kim, for that generous introduction. I so appreciate this opportunity to talk to all of our listeners about my work and what has really provoked me through the years since I first picked up a camera. I was born in New York City, and as a product of the peace and love generation, and of course all of us were swept up in our youth by a series of historic events that really opened our eyes in terms of our place, both in our political lives and how our voice is so critical in terms of our collective power as a country, as a people. And I think I first felt the shock and surprise about this as I lived through the 60s. So we go back and we have to start to trace the understanding of how historic events affect you and how it affects us personally. I begin at the death of John F. Kennedy and then, of course, at the tragic assassination of Martin Luther King. I wasn't old enough and also didn't live in an environment in New York where protest and civil injustice was part of my daily life. I grew up in a very privileged environment. I went to an all-girls private school. But I think we were mindful from afar And it didn't affect us. We cared. But I think with the assassination of Martin Luther King and the resulting events after that, I found my place in feeling that it wasn't enough to be reading about these events in the newspaper. So I then will fast forward to 1968 and the first actual protest political arena that I found myself in, and it was when I first got my Nikon FTN camera, George Wallace was speaking at Madison Square Garden. Wallace's speech began with a really informing experience for me. Wallace's speech began with a protest outside Madison Square Garden. There were groups that had assembled and were peacefully marching when the police arrived and without any provocation 
remove them, creating what I saw firsthand was a series of unjust arrests. That moment stayed with me. It wasn't until I moved to London, like around 1970s, late 69, when I was there acting and working. I was at the Royal Academy of Music. I had noticed in my travels, one thing that struck me so much is they were constructing the M1 and the M5 freeways. And it was the first freeway system or throughway system coming from London at the time. And I found all of the family farmers and families who had lived on that route, that roadway, for generations were being forced off their land. And a lot of these families were being put in dole housing, which would be state-held housing, not having the rights to fight this. And that is the first time I picked up my camera and I covered this and I created a story called exiting the Metropolitan, and I suddenly had this extraordinary passion for storytelling, taking the intimate pictures of these families and linking them to the broader notion that maybe some part of my narrative would turn out to help them. And so that is what first sort of took me down this rabbit hole. <laughs> it's a very long answer, but I think you get the gist. Thank you, Tish. I, I think it's important, though, because, you know, we don't often hear the backstories about how people come to the place that they are. Your first book of your photographs being published on Rizzoli called We Protest uh, in the next few weeks. And I think it's important for people to have an understanding about why you do what you do and what motivates you. And I think when I look at our friendship and the work that you've been doing for the last 20 plus years, more, longer than that, and your storytelling, that it's part of who you are. It's in your DNA. It's almost like even if you wanted to walk away from doing it, you couldn't because it's part of who you are. But a couple of things I just was struck with in your sharing of your background and how your experience of growing up in the 60s and 70s, you talked about how important our voice was back then and your recognition of it. And boy, <laughs> we're certainly in that moment right now. Um, you talked about how the people of color were treated and, you know, we're seeing that once again, it's this whole notion of anybody who isn't of a certain skin color is somehow less than and doesn't deserve to be here. And then you talked about these folks being pushed off their land and we're seeing that along the, our Southern border because of this border wall. So it is kind of an extraordinary through line that you're carrying in some ways without even being cognizant that you're carrying it, yet here you are. Yeah, that's so true. I really never thought of it like that. But boy, the extraordinary parallel is amazing for me personally. And also, in one sense, so sad because have we learned nothing from history? Well, I think the answer to that question is probably no, but uh, it, it, it is very sad. You've really done a lot of work around the elections from, you know, the Bush election in 2000 to the Obama elections and, of course, leading up to the Trump election and the Women's March. And I'm just curious, you know, starting with the 2000 election, talk a little bit about that time and perhaps even someone that you photographed or met 
in the course of that that made a particular impact on you, whether it was someone famous or whether it was somebody that, uh, that you just took their photograph in the crowd. I'm just curious if there was someone or some moment that stuck out for you during that time frame that put a maybe a finer point on being there and being witness and seeing what was happening because voters were so disenfranchised in that election. Why the 2000 election was important to me stemmed back from my recent trip to Guatemala at the end of their civil war in 1999. We were traveling on a public bus. We were on our way to Lake Atitlan. We were on this bus and the paramilitary stopped the bus. It was right at the end of the civil war. There were elections for the new president and they stopped the bus, and we were the only um, non-Guatemalans on this bus at the time, and I witnessed firsthand where men and some boys and some women were taken forcibly off the bus, and then after they were interrogated, some did not rejoin us on the journey to late Atitlan, and it was the voting time, and it became very clear from what we learned on the bus that these people were trying to work in canvas for the voting and canvas for their candidates. It was such a blaring, obvious moment to me. And I, at the time, could not take pictures. And normally, Tish would take a picture because I have that mindlessness and do get myself in trouble. But it was so affecting. And uh, I left Guatemala and came home to the 2000 election. And at first... I started covering the 2000 election, and I found it very bland and without muscle because we were post-Clinton era. Everybody was very complacent. Times were good. Of course, nobody in my world wanted George Bush, the decision by the Supreme Court. That is when I took what I had just seen in Guatemala with this privilege of voting and what your vote stands for and how people I had seen probably were willing to die for their vote, I realized that I had to start this journey. And so as I got on the trail with the protests and more importantly at the inauguration of George Bush, I encountered and had the privilege of meeting a woman who I am inspired by every day. Her name is Granny D. She was in her 90s when I met her in 2000. Granny D was a legend. She said, some of us may not have much power, but to pick it, to walk, or just stand in the way. It may not change the world overnight, but it is all we can do. And this woman epitomized and still epitomizes protest for me. What I learned from Granny D is something I think we all have to hold deeply inside us today as we're witnessing historic events surrounding the current crisis in Washington. Granny D didn't take herself too seriously, but she absolutely was what I call the citizen protester, the citizen journalist, so to speak. She would put herself in the most in-your-face places, like she stood in the halls of Congress, in the lobby, and read the Constitution at one point. She read the voting rights bill at one point. She always was escorted out by the police. 
she loved that role. It's almost a little bit like what Jane Fonda is doing today with Fire Drill Fridays. She wanted it in everyone's face that she was willing to go to jail. She was willing to do whatever it took to get politicians to wake up and realize that it is way beyond who and what they're getting paid for, but that they owe us their service as public servants. Then I learned Granny D had run for office in her 90s from her state in New Hampshire. And she walked across the United States of America for voting rights. And John McCain was a fan of hers. So with the spirit, this extraordinary camaraderie of odd bedfellows, in 2000, what I found was, yes, I found a great despondency and discouragement amongst many of us, particularly the progressive movement with what we were witnessing with George Bush. And then we had this upsurge after 9-11, which then, as you can imagine, my camera went from capturing the disenfranchised and perhaps the examination, is there a movement here like the 60s or 70s, to now focused entirely on war in Iraq. So this sent me on the trail. And so I have to add a few more people who not only affected how I would tell a story, but I look upon as some of the great teachers to me uh, just as a citizen. And I begin with Gore Vidal, who I had the privilege of even being on a stage with, not as a speaker, but I had such a rapport with him that I was able to photograph him as he spoke against the war. And that is when I first met Martin Sheen. And Martin was, of course, at every peace rally one can think about. I found his appetite for really saying it like it is when it comes to us understanding peace and collaboration and a community of people in the world. Such an education to me, such an opportunity for me to listen to him. And again, such an opportunity to spend years photographing him at these events. And then I also have to add Tom Hayden, who was a hero to me in a way because of what he stood for in the 70s. But then again, during these events throughout the years on the trail from 203 to 2008, they were always there. Martin was there. Gore Vidal unfortunately passed away. And then the cast of characters begins to include someone who I have such enormous respect for, who I found at every one of these rallies as soon as he was back from the fighting theater in Iraq, uh, which is Garrett Reppenhagen. And I first met Garrett in 2007 at one of the most empowering rallies. It was when all the veterans who had returned from Iraq, so many in wheelchairs, so many with PTSD, so many who were threatened with additional tours of Iraq, took over the capital of Washington. And all hundreds of thousands of us walked down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House, to George Bush, and there was Garrett. And I mean, this to me was the kind of rally that had tears streaming down my face the whole time. Just how thoughtlessly and recklessly we send young men and women, we send seasoned professionals to war. So 
What you have is you have a vortex of experiences that started to seed with me, that started to embody what my work was going to actually represent. And it wasn't the large overall panoramic view of the long crowd that we always see in these rallies, but my work really focuses on the intimate moments, the people that photographers, journalists, and press media are not photographing as a rule. But my work is more attuned to the granny D's, the people we don't know about so well, the moments that are intimate, the shared moment between myself and a protester, an activist, an American, a veteran, a teacher, you name it, who wants to bring a piece of themselves into my camera. And I really think when I look at the momentum that was starting to erupt up until Barack Obama, that is when I remember my daughter and I having a conversation about what am I going to do with this work? You know, we're now 2007. I started in 2000. There was a lot to protest, but boy, it really was about peace. There's no question that we all work very hard to further embrace a hope to get an alternative to George Bush in 2004. And now I was becoming political with my camera, so I was right there and then with that. But by the time 2007 occurred, I realized that I had the makings of a book. And I really didn't have the kind of ending to the story that would have made it fulfilling because our country didn't have the kind of ending to the story. We were moving into a full-on financial collapse. The work I was photographing now included Beyond the Peace Movement. It included the full end of what the unions and the financial markets were, you know, taking advantage of everyday families. So you had the foreclosure crisis looming. You had such a dissatisfaction and such a mood of disenfranchisement and malaise and anger, which was great in terms of being on the other end of a camera, but it didn't have a conclusion. And that's true until I was able to go out and cover Barack Obama as a candidate for president, and then, of course, covering his acceptance of the Democratic nomination in 2008. One of the things that you talked about was your camera being trained, not necessarily on the long view, but rather on the individuals in the crowds at different moments in the crowds. And you also found yourself sort of being on the other side of the camera when you were pushed to the street and had to be taken to the ER. And I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about that moment, because the cameras were rolling while this was happening, correct? Yes. I want to just say that, you know, all of us do what we do, and we have full understanding there's crowd control. It's so much a part of what everybody always experiences wherever you are on the street. In this case, I don't know how I can describe what happened. I can only tell you I was very affected by an African-American family that had come all the way from Florida to see Barack Obama accept the nomination. And this was a pristine family. They were the most beautiful foursome. And I met them in a Mexican dive bar that was right over in Vesco Field in Denver. And in Vesco Field in that arena was where Barack Obama was accepting the nomination. 
And this family struck me. It just stood out what their experience was. They couldn't get tickets to the event in Invesco Field. They weren't given the right information. And unfortunately, the family had pulled all their resources to take a Greyhound bus from Florida to Denver. And now we're going to have to turn around empty-handed with no experience for their young teenage son and daughter. I was a bit sickened by this and struck. I went out into the crowd and I'm now like almost on a mission trying to get them tickets. I encounter a group of Colorado Rangers. This was a group that were standing by a Humvee. One of them said to me, you know, Missy, there's a rally that would totally have your attention. It's on not going to war against Iran, but more important for you, it's for legalizing marijuana. And I think you should get down to the bridge and cover it. I did go down there and there were a cacophony of cops on bikes and I looked at them and I said, is this a rally that's going towards Invesco Field? And I don't know, before I knew it, I felt a hand go on the back of my neck and push me down on the sidewalk with my two cameras around my neck. I blocked out for a second. There was blood everywhere. I came to, the first thing I thought of is, oh my God, I broke my camera. And then a uh, long story short, I then find myself in an ambulance with this chickie with red cowboy boots who was really a pistol, this woman. Uh, and she kept saying to me, just hold it down tight on your nose. We'll get you fixed up. And I had no idea what happened. And all I remember is looking out of the side of the ambulance and there's a local news cameraman filming me inside with her and racing us over the lawn and through the crowds to the local hospital. And I just want to say that, yeah, I didn't break my nose. I was very lucky, but I had to have 16 stitches down the side of my nose. One of my cameras broke. The other was okay. After I had the stitches, I didn't have my camera with me, and I'm in the ER in recovery. And it was right when Barack Obama was accepting his nomination. And I felt terrible because I started to flash on the African-American family who were waiting for me to return with tickets. But I also was viewing something that I thought was just such an unbelievable scene. Talk about a photographer without a camera. So I'm in that very small little holding zone. I'm hoping to be released and I'm feeling a little foggy and I'm noticing a group of interns and nurses circulate around a small, small screen of a computer and you could hear the crackling of a Barack Obama in the background. So the one thing I had was my radio. I turn on my radio. I find the speech. He's accepting for the nomination. And now the crowd, you know, nurses stations getting bigger and bigger. And you could see them all train their ear to the computer. Anyway, that's what happened to me in Denver. I would imagine while you didn't have a similar kind of experience in that you weren't harmed intentionally or otherwise, after President Obama was elected, we saw the rise of the Tea Party really sort of take hold in this country. And I remember you talking about a particular event that the Koch brothers held in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and you found yourself infiltrating 
so to speak, this particular event. Tell us a little bit about that. It was an extraordinary eye-opener to me. I'll just say that. And what happened was I was visiting my daughter and son-in-law in Phoenix, and I saw in the local paper that they were having the first big fundraiser for the Tea Party in Scottsdale in a very posh setting. And I called up to see how I could get a ticket, which were exorbitantly priced, And they had said that the photographer who was supposed to shoot the event was unable to do it, was sick, and they needed a photographer, and I volunteered. I didn't even ask for payment. And as a matter of fact, they felt that attending the event would be payment enough. So I got myself dressed in black, and I went off to the country club. The arrival was a series of vigilantes at the front of the entrance in black with cowboy hats carrying their beautiful uh, presentation uh, revolvers and everybody looking ready to rumble. And I walked in and it was a typical ballroom setting, a black tie, everybody elegantly dressed. I was informed that I would be given a person to walk around with me and I would be capturing everybody who attended. And one of the people who were the guests was a radio show host. I won't mention her name on the air, but she was very popular. She took a real liking to me and as if I was indeed on their team. So as I began to move from crowd to crowd, my camera, as if it has a mind of its own, could not help but turn to focus on people like the attorney who was working for the Koch Brothers Foundation. I found a great deal of fascination with him. I found a great deal of fascination taking images of the crowd while watching the jumbotron of Sarah Palin and Newt Gingrich and the choir from somewhere singing glory, glory, hallelujah. And people were curious as to who I was. There was no question. And what really got me was the overall outrageous loathing of Barack Obama. To me, it was so vulgar. It was the early days of his administration. And so how they depicted him was nauseating. At one point, somebody had drawn a scaffold with him on it, very akin to a lynching. This truly was the other side of America to me. And I had never been in a position where I had up front and closely seen that. And now I'm covering it for them. So to jump to the chase with the story, which I find somewhat funny, I remember just as dinner was about to be served, I was standing in the ballroom at the edge of the stage and the group of people who were running the event got up on the stage and they were introducing what the night's events would be before they served dinner. And they started to open with doing the Pledge of Allegiance. And I don't know what got a hold of me, but I got up on the stage with my camera And I thought to myself, Tish, you're going to want to have pictures of everybody here. So I got up and one by one, group by group, I started taking pictures of the people with their hands across their chest. And people were responding favorably to me doing this when all of a sudden one of the attorneys looked at me on the stage and the person running the event looked at me on the stage. And I had that deer in a headlights expression back at them. And I knew I had to get out of there. And so the waiters burst 
forth through the side right adjacent to the stage with trays of food to start serving dinner. And I literally backed off the stage and as if in an orchestrated dance move, went through the waiters, one side, one waiter on each side of me and went out through the kitchen, called my husband and had him meet me in the back of the country club. And I got the hell out of there. You know, there are certain times in my life where I found myself in situations where it almost feels surreal because you may find yourself with folks who don't think like you do or have the same belief systems that you do. And they come across as very nice, but you realize that there is something nefarious, dangerous perhaps, about what they're up to. And so I'm sitting here listening to you tell this story. And so for me, the overwhelming feeling would just have been, this is completely surreal. I lost my role of photojournalist in this event. I became such an angry citizen viewing what would become, I think in hindsight, the beginning of the downfall of America for this period we're in. It all was the genesis of it was in this room. I think it only goes to prove that we have a responsibility with our camera. We have a responsibility to tell the story. I have to say that throughout the years of Occupy Wall Street and then my time in Wisconsin during that extraordinary, courageous, and exhilarating movement for workers' rights, I think we felt we were on a new frontier with protest. We were actually making terrific ground. Way back in 2012, I had the opportunity of encountering Vivian Applewhite. What happened was I had heard on Brad Friedman's program, there was a woman in her 90s in Pennsylvania who had been robbed in the grocery store, and she had lost all her identification. And when she went to her precinct to re-register to vote, to vote for Barack Obama in what could be her last election, she was denied registering because she didn't have the appropriate ID. So she went and got the appropriate ID But A, it wasn't everything she needed, and now the clock had struck out and there wasn't time. So they denied her the right to register so she could not vote. But Vivian Applewhite was no one to trifle with. She had cut her teeth fighting and marching with Martin Luther King in her day. She was an educator. She was a real no-nonsense woman. And she was not easily intimidated. So Viviette went ahead and began to take her case to the courts. And then the ACLU discovered that she was fighting with no money, living in a nursing home. They took her case on, and she eventually, she won. She beat the elections board in Pennsylvania. She took her case all the way to the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, and she had a victory. So I was so inspired by this. So I found her phone number in a phone book, and I called her up on the phone. I'm in L.A. She's in a nursing home in South Philly. I got on a plane, and I made arrangements to go photograph her. So as I'm going to photograph her, I had borrowed a friend's car, and her GPS was broken, and I was lost. There was a detour. And I call up Viviette on the phone, and I say, Viviette, I'm going to be a little late. And she says to me, dear, you better hurry it up here. Because I've got the ambulance downstairs, I'm having heart palpitations, and I don't want you mistaking my picture. 
And I responded, Vivia, wait a minute. If you're going to the hospital, we'll do this another time. My God, what can I do to help? And she said, no, 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 no. You're to come here. I want my picture taken in my home. And I have a few things to say that I want you to write down. Well, lo and behold, I get there. She has music blaring. She's in a muumu. She lives life to the moment, this woman. African-American, 93 or 4 years old, fully retired. Anyway, I did take her picture. And here is what Viviette said to me. People built our nation. Our republic is in the hands of the people. A word of caution to politicians. You better take us seriously because if you don't believe in us, if you don't believe in the power of the people, then you'll lose your jobs. I have lived in this country for almost a hundred years and I have seen what it takes to get the politicians to make laws that help citizens. I learned this from marching with Martin Luther King. We must remind ourselves every single day to fight for our rights. If we don't back down, if we continue to stand up for our rights, then and only then do I have all the faith in the world for our democracy. Poignant words and so true. And I think when you find someone like Viviette who had to live through the civil rights movement and really what that movement was about in gaining rights and being able to vote, being treated at least somewhat equally, I think that her words are even more powerful because of how she got to where she is. And that's why she fought so hard to hold on to her right to be able to cast that vote. So it's a really a great story of inspiration. I'm so glad that you shared it. The one thing that I think is really unique in your journey is that you have so many of these great stories about people that are not household names. They're not part of our history in the way that someone like Martin Sheen is or Harry Belafonte or Betty Friedan. You took one of the last photographs of Betty Friedan. The situation with Betty was so priceless. And wow, what a clarion call for today. So 2004, in New York City, the Republican Convention, People for the American Way had set up an event at Cooper Union Hall, where Abraham Lincoln had spoken. And this was to be a reading of the Constitution. And the following people came. Alec Baldwin was there, Ossie Davis, Ruby Dee, Laurie Anderson. I mean, it was an extraordinary collection of luminaries. Anyway, I was backstage waiting to actually take a photo of Ossie Davis. I had no idea Betty Friedan was coming. She wasn't young. I had heard she was suffering with some illness. Anyway, she arrived, and there were a group of young girls, and she says to them, you better take those smiles off your face. You have to keep your eye on the ball, because they are looking right over your shoulder. You have to prepare that it takes every day to continue fighting, because if you don't fight for your rights, you will not keep them. And at the time, I remember thinking, whoa, I think she could be a little off base because who in the hell would have ever thought we would be revisiting the complete takedown of Roe v. Wade 
and everything that has transpired since 2004. Yes, of course, there was a lot of chipping away at certain elements of it, but not as nationally threatened as we see today, and particularly with the Supreme Court that we have. And I took that picture of her, and it really sits in my office as a clarion call to the fact that activism for issues like that, and for women particularly, we cannot put away our signs, our boots, our megaphone. You would think, Kim, we get to a place where, okay, we've fought these battles, they're done, and now we have to certainly fight for the planet, and we have to fight for the planet, which impacts women and children more than anything. But when you look at our heroes that are cautioning us to not be complacent, that was like a bullseye to me. When you look at what happened in Washington, D.C. three years ago, since the first women's march and now where we are, and you've done a lot of work between now and then, particularly working on the border, going to shelters, speaking to folks who have tried to come into this country for a better life. Give me a little bit of perspective, because I think this is really getting to what people can expect when they go out and they find we protest and they look at your body of work and your perspective and some of the quotes that you've taken from people that you photographed at various events around the country. Give us a little view of how that's informed what you're doing and your perspective on where we are as a country. For me, I think going to this shelter where the children were was one of the most eye-opening experiences I've had since I covered the Congo. You know, there are no bells and whistles when you're out in the field where somebody turns to you and says, oh, that's the story, that's the picture. You also have to be really respectful of capitalizing and exploiting other people's misfortune. And this is a big deal, especially when you are photographing children who have no rights, really. You can't go and plaster their faces around the world. It's hard to get permission to take pictures of those who are suffering. Most of the people in this position do not want their photographs taken. So that begins some of the problems that you face as a photojournalist always. So I went to this shelter, and the first thing I couldn't get over was the conditions of how these people were living and also couldn't get over the intense lock systems that kept these children and the mothers behind closed doors in this concrete, old, rusted dwelling that was adjacent to a church. And I like to think that the church is going to try to make these conditions easier and easier for these families. The minute I got there and the children came into the picture, with Andrea Racone from the School Box Project. It's a project originated in San Francisco. Two women were just devastated with the Syrian refugee problem and all the children who weren't getting education. And she found a way to find a series of old school buses and get teachers there in Turkey and in Greece to teach the children temporarily. And then she expanded the program and bought it to Tijuana. And it's the first flagship project in Tijuana. And Andrea Racone is the head teacher. And she's only 22, 23 years old. But when I got there and they saw Andrea, the kids came pouring out they couldn't have been more excited. It was a true study of resilience. It was an appetite of such unbelievable hunger to learn, such 
concentration, helping each other, kids that age, grade school age, I'd like to say from four to 11, there was no, that's mine, that's mine, or talking over each other. So what I found was such a rebirth inside of me, who's really getting depressed these days out in the field, covering what we're covering. And you looking at these children and their mothers, the mothers that I saw, and some without mothers. Nobody's talking about what circumstances brought them there because that wasn't appropriate, actually. What I found as a photojournalist and as somebody who is the author of We Protest, who has a healthy chapter on immigration, boy, I wish we had had an opportunity to get this is what life is like right now for those that are a product of our policies. That part of the story does need to be sometimes in documentary books because honestly, Kim, we'll never understand this story if we can't personally meet these people who are affected. And when you meet these children and these mothers, do you think that they had any other option but to try to leave where they're living? Nobody chooses to live like this under lock and key, especially with your child who wants to run and play outdoors. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I can say it has entirely changed me as a woman, as a mother, in terms of my commitment to this issue is now quite plain and simple. I want to help these children. And I don't know what I can do to help them. But boy, if I can't do something, then I have to re-examine what I'm doing. I'd just like to give you an opportunity to share in closing the more sort of, you know, here's when the book is coming and here's the name of it and here's where you can find it and and anything that can give America Speaks listeners the opportunity to really have an understanding about when they pick up the book, which you've spent years and years and years putting your sweat equity into. Give us a sense of what the reader can really have an understanding about when they see We Protest. So we protest fighting for what we believe in. We'll be out on the market across the world and across the country March 10th, 2020. And it will be available on Amazon. And it's also available on Barnes and Nobles. It's available at Target. It's available in local bookstores. And if you would like a copy and you cannot find it, you can certainly write to me at Tish Lampert, number nine at gmail.com. And we will make sure you get a copy. And I like to call this an anthem. It's a cross between a protester's handbook and a scrapbook of us. This is our book. This is our shared journey. If you have protested for anything in the past three years, you could very well be in this book. This book is about you taking your power back, you owning your voice, and you demanding what's best for your future and your children's future, because we're in very, very important times. So I am political. I cannot be behind the camera in this story without saying his election is not only a mistake for our country, but for the world. So with that said, the book also doesn't examine the politics of the issue. The book examines how we use our voice. So I begin the book tour 
in Los Angeles on March 19th at 7 p.m. at Chevalier's Bookstore. I then go to Montclair, New Jersey on March 23rd at 7 p.m. at Temple Nair Tamid. 936 Broad Street in Bloomfield, New Jersey, a Montclair Literary Festival pre-event in a wonderful conversation with myself, Enrique Morones, founder of Border Angels and Gente Unida, and with Kathy Lynn Austin, founder and director of the Conflict Awareness Project, moderated by Bud Mishkin of CBS News Radio Network. And then after that, on March 24th, I'm proud to be in conversation with Ginny Suss, moderated by Julie Winokur at Photographiska, New York. And afterwards, we're all very excited to have Ginny's Resistance Chorus perform. And all the resulting places that I go to, whether it's an event or a bookstore around the country, please visit my website at www.tishlampert.org and you can find my whole book tour. There'll be a section on We Protest in my website. And I want to thank Kim Langbacker for this wonderful interview today that's given me an opportunity to talk about my book and my work. Well, thank you so much, Tish. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm very much looking forward to the fruits of your labor and seeing the book in person. And I couldn't be happier for you because you are so deserving of this opportunity. And I know that anyone who picks up the book is going to be so inspired to rise up, to stand up and to make sure that their voice is heard. So thank you so much, Tish. And lastly, I want to thank James Koblenz, without who this episode would not be possible today. And remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice. (laughs) 